This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, followed by replays throughout the week. The purpose of my show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. I want to understand the work of tomorrow. Last year, we had a big event in our family. After my kids have been making a fairly compelling set of arguments about the need for an electric vehicle and also somewhat intrigued by the new technology, my wife and I got a Tesla Model 3. Like any Tesla, the car comes with a lot of cool features, including various forms of assistance and autonomous driving. Honestly, I have not yet made up my mind to what extent I trust this technology, but that might change depending on what I will find out on the show today. Autonomous driving is obviously not just impacting my life, but it has the potential to disrupt the work of millions of professional drivers who are now driving trucks, buses, or ride-hailing services. So autonomous driving is the topic of my show today. To explore this topic, I will be speaking to two wonderful guests. In the first half of the show, I will be speaking to Jeremy McLean, who is Director of Systems and Technology at Continental AG, a global leader in automotive innovation. And then in the second half of the show, I will talk to Paul Newman, who is the co-founder and chief technology officer of Oxbotica, the maker of autonomous driving software. Welcome, Jeremy, at this point. Hello, Christian. Good to be on. Hey, Jeremy. Uh, I have to get up from Philadelphia to Connecticut tomorrow. Uh, if you would give me a ride in your personal car, what type of autonomous and assisted driving would I notice in your car? Yeah, that's so in my personal car, I've got... Uh, active safety and driver assist systems in that vehicle that provide autonomous emergency braking, as an example, as well as forward collision warning and a lane-keeping system. Um, but I heard you mention at the, the beginning of the show here uh, your experience in the Tesla, uh, which would then, of course, provide you some further driver assistance technology, so a highway assist function which allows you to um, basically take your hands off the wheel for short periods of time and essentially controls uh, the, the lateral and longitudinal motion for you and assists you to, to be able to sit back, relax, and take some stress away from, from the actual driving test while I must, uh, I must emphasize continuing to watch the road. Yeah. If we would not take your personal car, but the coolest prototyping car that you have at Continental AG, what would be the experience in that case? Yeah, we've got a couple of different uh, solutions that we've been working on for a number of years. One of those we call Cruising Chauffeur, and that provides a what we call partially automated functionality, which allows you as a driver, at, while we're on the highway, to disengage from the driving task. And the difference there from the systems that are on the market today to that particular vehicle is that we have uh, redundancies in place, which allow you to actually disengage from the driving task, take your hands off the wheel, take your eyes away from the road, and the system is then safely controlling your driving experience while under certain what we call operational design domains. So under certain conditions, like on the highway, you're able to do that. And in case there's any issues where we need you to come back into the loop, we're able to inform you uh, in advance so that you can re-engage into the driving task and take over control. For example, when you exit the highway, when you end um, that highway driving portion of your trip and you go back to the rural or urban roads, um, so that's something that we've offered that we offer with the the cruising chauffeur system, which will enter the market in a number of years here, as well uh, as technologies like autonomous valet parking, 
where you can arrive at your destination, and rather than spend time searching the parking lot for an available parking space, you're able to simply drop your vehicle in the handoff zone, and it will then go and search for a parking space and park itself while you can then proceed to the restaurant or to your meeting or whatever it is that you're, you're looking to do. Uh, Jeremy, as a, as a global provider of automotive technology, uh, cutting-edge innovator, uh, what, what differences do you see when it comes to autonomous driving across countries and the, the companies that you supply? Well, for sure, different places throughout the world uh, have different challenges. For, for, for one, you have driving on the right-hand side of the road versus driving on the left-hand side of the road. Um, in some countries, even the, the lane markers are, are different than they are in other countries. For example, in Korea, there's blue lane markers. Uh, here we have white and yellow lane markers. In Europe, we have only white lane markers. Um, that's one example. Um, even the traffic signs look a bit different from place to place. And the density of driving and, I would say, the normal ethics and, and driving rules, the rules of the road, change. So, of course, when you develop automated driving solutions, you have to consider course, those nuances of the, of the places that you're developing them for. A lot of the automated driving work that's being done today is for dedicated use areas, specific cities, specific highway sections, etc. Of course, then you can do it locally. But when we look at developing automated driving for privately owned cars, then we have a different situation. And we really have to take a global perspective. And that's one of the things that we do here at Continental very well, is we distribute that automated driving development project uh, or those projects that we work on across the globe so that we are able to take care of uh, those nuances and make sure that we have solutions that are available for everybody. Uh, as a supplier, really, who does not sell to the end market but is empowering the OEMs that you're supplying to, uh, do companies think about make or buy very differently on the OEM side when they think about the intelligence, the capability of uh, autonomous driving? Are there some that go like, we, we all do it in-house, and some say like, well, let's, let's turn it to the suppliers to drive the innovation? Yeah, I would say every manufacturer has a little bit different take on that. Um, but if you look at the challenges that we face with respect to automating vehicles, uh, it's something that almost requires partnerships. There's, there's really a, I mean, it, it's, it's an epic challenge at the end of the day, and it requires the kind of expertise and investment into R&D that really can't be um, solved by any one particular company. And that, therefore, you see lots of partnerships in the space. We work together with all the major OEMs, uh, being original equipment manufacturers throughout the world, uh, to provide our specific expertise in sensing solutions, in environmental modeling solutions, in computing platforms, uh, and driving functions, and safe solutions for safe, redundant architectures, as an example. Um, in order to, let's say, lessen the burden on them to have to do all of it themselves and have all that expertise in-house. So do you think, uh, we, we talked about the Tesla, and since Elon is a Wharton graduate, uh, I have to ask you a question. Do you think uh, Elon Musk would uh, second your observation that no company can do it alone, uh, or is that something that there is still the hope that it can be kind of pulled off by one company? Yeah, I, I would say I can't um, predict what he would think Nobody can, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but for sure, if you look at any system, no matter what system you look at, which is out there, whether it be a level one, what we would call a, an active safety or assisted function, mm -hmm. or a level two system, which is more highly assisted, uh, and then the, the more automated systems that are coming to the market in the next years, they will have DNA, they will have expertise from many companies inside. So as an example, 
every system uses radar, sens- radar sensors. And there's a lot of processing which is done in that particular radar sensor, which is not done by the manufacturer. It's done by companies like Continental, the supplier. And we have many, many years of experience in understanding the data that's coming from those sensors, and that will continue. So even if they, those manufacturers tend to bring a lot of that in-house, there's still a lot of pieces which are coming from their partners. Are we living in times of exponential progress, Jeremy? I, I've often hear industry experts and academics say, like, well, everything is exponential because innovation is now all about recombining things, and the more we have, the more we can recombine. Uh, and there's certainly on autonomous driving been a lot of buzz recently, but mm-hmm. I also get the sense that the more you want to move from 90 to 95 to 99 to 99.9%, the harder it gets, right? And so... Um, do you, do you think it's going to be really because of it being exponential that we're going to solve that problem very quickly? Or what is your prediction for the next couple of years? Yeah, so I think you have to be careful um, looking at automated driving as being something which is only done revolutionarily. If you look at the way that we see the path to fully automated vehicles, or the road to fully automated vehicles, we see it evolving in in two different paths, something that we call the new duality. On the one hand side, you have a very evolutionary approach towards automated driving, and that's for your privately owned cars. So you mentioned already you have a privately owned car. I have a couple of privately owned cars. And quite frankly, you will and I will for many years to come, I I would believe. Privately owned cars will make up more than 90% of the total vehicle volumes worldwide for a good number of years to come. And we can't forget about the 40,000 lives lost and mm-hmm. the more than 1.2 million fatalities globally each year due to vehicle accidents. And when we look at that particular side, as I mentioned already, it's evolutionary, going from active safety systems to driver assistance systems, eventually into some partially automated driving solutions. And that's really, really important for getting us to what we would call Vision Zero, the the vision of zero accidents, injuries, or fatalities due to vehicle transportation. Now, on the other side, you have the more revolutionary approach where we take a, let's say, clean slate approach towards providing automated driving. It's the sexier and more talked about side that you already mentioned where we provide completely driverless robocabs, which solve specific challenges that are faced by mainly cities um, and providing mobility-as-a-service solutions through autonomy to the consumers. And that's something we would call everything somewhere. It's providing everything, meaning full autonomy, but somewhere in the world and and tackling specific challenges around specific cities or in the first steps around, let's say, benign weather conditions and so on, known, uh, known challenges, solving known challenges. Where on the other hand side, when we talked about those privately owned cars, that's something we call something everywhere. It's some, some level of autonomy, assisted driving, active safety, et cetera, providing very, very safe solutions, um, but everywhere in the world. And you have to really look at those two different paths towards autonomy in in different ways. It's interesting, Jeremy. It also makes me think about the approach of starting with the vehicle and kind of building it out towards autonomy. You really are replicating the senses, the brain of the driver, Versus in the situation where you're equipping a, a whole city with with uh, with a fleet of robot taxis, uh, you can rely much more on vehicle to vehicle communication. Mm-hmm. 
Is that uh, is that trend for the vehicle not being just replicating the driver, but the vehicle becoming part of the ecosystem and intelligently interacting with other cars and interacting with street lights or other sensors in the in in, in the infrastructure? Um, is that part of the revolutionary path as well? It is part of the revolutionary part for sure. Vehicle to vehicle, vehicle to infrastructure, vehicle to everything. At the end of the day, we call V to X communication will be a big piece of that, well, to be honest, it's a big piece of both of those paths of duality. But if you look at it specifically with regards to automation, if we were able to have a step change in cities and say, okay, no more privately owned cars, no more privately driven vehicles, we're going to go straight to robo-taxis as an example, then you could rely on that vehicle-to-vehicle and vehicle-to-infrastructure technology in order to, to solve some of those challenges. And quite frankly, the challenges that we solve with that connected technology is, um, from a safety standpoint, what we call the hidden danger. The danger that the vehicle itself, the driver itself, the sensors on the vehicle can't see without some help. Yeah, so seeing an, a, a vehicle that's going to run a red light beyond uh, a crowd of pedestrians, which is blocking its view, or beyond an, another vehicle, which is blocking its view. And if we had that step change where we had all connected vehicles in the city, we would be able to see that because we would communicate from car to car. But we don't see it happening that way. We don't see a step change happening in any city, quite frankly. And if it happens in any city, it would be very, very few. So if you look at that, that means we'll have mixed fleets, meaning we'll have fleets of vehicles out there on the road, which are partly driven by humans and partly uh, driven by machines, autonomous vehicles. And therefore, we see the need to equip the infrastructure with intelligence. And we've got some smart city technologies that we're developing, which takes the proven automotive solutions that we have, for example, in sensing, being able to sense pedestrians and bicyclists and cars and trucks and so on, those hidden dangers. And we equip the infrastructure with that technology. And then we sense those dangers and then we broadcast it to those connected cars. So we're able to take that uh, connected vehicle and connected infrastructure penetration and significantly increase it which then, of course, significantly increases uh, the safety as well as the efficiency uh, of that technology in those vehicles. What are, for your technology, the hottest conditions? I'm imagining like Manhattan with the high skyscrapers. I'm mm-hmm. thinking of the German Autobahn, the crazy Shanghai traffic, the, the London weather. I mean, everything, uh, I just see complications all over the place. Um, what, 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 when are you the most nervous when you think about your vehicles that are out there in testing mode? Do you go like, ah, this is going to require driver intervention? Yeah, so some of those challenges uh, would be, I would say, would be coming from the hidden dangers, as I mentioned. And therefore, the infrastructure can help us to to overcome that, and vehicle-to-vehicle technology can help us to overcome that. Um, Some of those would be around localization. So as an example, you mentioned the uh, urban canyons, what we would call them urban canyons, of a city like New York City, where you don't get a GPS signal to the vehicle. And there we have solutions which um, which use maps, of the of the roadway and, and specific landmarks within those maps that the vehicle can help can use to help localize itself when it doesn't have a GPS signal, which also offers uh, forms of redundancy so that if some of that information is missing, it can fall back on the other information to make sure that it understands exactly where it is uh, with respect to its environment. And then I would say one of the biggest challenges is really finding ways to leverage existing data and the experience that we collect from test drives to validate those solutions 
so those fully automated solutions or highly assisted solutions to make sure that they're ready for deployment. And we can do that through tools like simulation. So we take the data that we've experienced, we take the data that's available uh, publicly like crash data, and we can extrapolate that data through simulation tools to put our system or our vehicle into a situation which we maybe have never encountered to make sure that it handles it in, in the right way in a safe and controlled environment before we go ahead and, and launch that solution into the, into the field. As an example, if you look at um, human drivers, you know, we, we say that automated systems have to be better than human drivers. And we know that driver error, human error, is a cause for more than 95% of all accidents. But quite frankly, humans aren't that bad of drivers. If you look at the U.S. data today, we have about 120,000 miles between crashes. So just to make sure that an automated vehicle is not going to crash more than a human-driven vehicle, we have to drive it at least 120,000 miles, which is a big number, but of course we do more than that in our test drives. But if you look at the number of miles between fatalities, there's more than 80 million miles between fatalities. So if we want to make sure that a automated system is going to be better than a human from that respect, we have to drive really significant numbers of miles. And that's where that, those simulation tools and that use of data and that extrapolation of that data that we already have into new scenarios is really, really important. And that's a big challenge, and it's something that we're all working very, very diligently um, to solve in the industry and something that I'm certain will, will help us to get there. That's really interesting what you mentioned, Jeremy, on, on, on the data. And I mean, like in all AI settings, the data being crucial for the further kind of enhancement of the algorithms here. Mm -hmm. um, so when you are equipping one of your customers, an OEM, who, um, you know, a brand name like a Volkswagen or a Mercedes, you're ex equipping a, a, an OEM, uh, you're learning your technology is learning as they're driving there's kind of sensor feeds there's information gathered with every drive who mm -hmm. owns this data is is your oem client keeping that data are they sharing it with you uh, is this shared with an industry organization at, at, at what level does the kind of the who owns the ip for all the data that your sensors mm -hmm. collect out there yeah that's a good question there's no i would say there's no generalized answer to that question so in the cases where we work together with manufacturers, in some cases, the manufacturer owns that data. In many cases, we as a partner own or, or co-own that data and have access to that data. Um, in other cases, there's public-private partnership projects, which allow us to share data between organizations and to leverage larger amounts of data, which happen to be out there and, and existing. So I would say there's no generalized answer. It's case by case. But it's very, very important that we have access to data. So that's why you see lots of players like Continental um, out there testing vehicles, driving vehicles, collecting data, making sure that we fully understand um, the situation that those vehicles will be subjected to when we launch automated solutions. I guess in many ways that speaks a little bit to the nature of supplier being a supplier to the OEMs that when you are innovating, usually we think of innovation as some form of giving us a competitive edge over our uh, our rivals. So when a car company is, is bragging with the new autonomous driving features that they've gotten from you, um, in some sense you're also working with their competitors, right? And so uh, does that kind of impact your work as a supplier? Would you work differently if you would be within an R&D lab at an OEM? Yeah, I would say 
Yes and no. I mean, when you look at most of those projects, which are really shared amongst multiple parties, every, every party is bringing their own particular component or expertise to the table. Therefore, um, having the data which is relevant to that particular component or expertise. But that's why I will also mention it's very important that we do work um, pre-competitively at each of the organizations and really work to understand the complete system solution. So if you look at Continental, we don't build vehicles. We don't sell vehicles, but we do complete automated driving systems development work to make sure that we understand how each of those individual pieces fits together so that we can be a better partner to the manufacturer that we're supporting or to the multiple manufacturers that we're supporting. And then in those particular projects where we're looking to launch a a vehicle, we might only get a piece of that data, but we understand the, the complete context because of the experience that we've built on our own, and that makes us a better partner. Uh, Jeremy, I want to switch topics and talk a little bit about the ethical and social context in which all of this technology is playing out. We we, we saw in the news the 737 MAX accident stores, which ha- have something to do at least with automation. We saw, of course, last year the, the tragic Uber fatality. Um, is there a certain, do you sense in society at large a certain backlash against uh, autonomous technology? You know, I think it's a, it's a bit too early to tell. Um, but one thing's for certain, we have to do this in the right way. So when, when we're developing these technologies, it's really important that we consider safety as the utmost importance. And we, we really put a lot of weight on safety. Um, and one thing that we do know, so we, we do a mobility study every five years. And, and our latest mobility study actually shows that the consumer sentiment Uh, is moving a bit away from the trust in the automated driving that we saw five years ago. Um, So we did the last one in 2018. The one previous was, I think, in 2013. And we saw a decrease in the trust that the consumer is putting on automated vehicles. And you could attribute that to certain things that are happening in the industry. And we have to be careful that we are very, very diligent about safety. And that's one of the things that, that we pride ourselves on here at Continental is to be very safe. And we've been building safety technologies for multiple decades and bringing that experience to the table when you talk about highly assisted and, and automated vehicles is something that, like I mentioned, we pride ourselves on and, and we absolutely will not um, lose focus of. Yeah, it's interesting. We had uh, some folks here at the Wharton School, Berkeley Deedforce, Joe Simmons and Kate Massey. Uh, they coined this term algorithm inversion, right? And there, there seems to be something going on in society that on the one hand, again, I think the vision zero that you articulated earlier on, uh, the tragedy of 40,000 lost lives on American roads is, 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 I mean, those are big issues, right? But there is subjective or not, but there's consumer emotions. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I guess there's nothing we can do about it, right? Even if, if your technology is just taking, even if it just, just would and would just would kill 100 people, uh, people would still kind of blame the algorithm for that. Yeah, I think, you know, there's truth to that, of course. And when we talk about automated driving, let's not lose focus of that evolutionary path that I mentioned, because a lot of the technologies are available today that can significantly reduce those numbers of accidents, injuries, and fatalities on the road. As we, in parallel, focus on that other side, which is the more revolutionary side, making that those vehicles, those fully automated or, or very highly automated solutions safer than human drivers, um, and if we really focus on both sides and not just one of them, then, we're, then we can attack that Vision Zero in the best way possible. 
And I think that's, you know, if I could say nothing else when I talk to people about automated driving is let's not forget about both sides. Yeah. Jeremy, you have been in the industry and you see kind of the big changes in mobility and autonomous driving is just one of them. It, it seems to be that the, the, the big themes are electric, autonomous and shared. Mm -hmm. um, are, are those three interconnected in some sense uh, do the, or can we just think of them as three separate issues? Well, they're certainly connected in some ways. So connected and automated, I would say, are, are very well connected. Uh, Pardon the pun, um, but they go together. And as I mentioned already, I, you know, if you want to have automated vehicles driving around in cities, you really have to make sure that those vehicles are connected to each other, but also connected to the infrastructure to make sure that they have all of the information possible uh, to navigate those those city streets safely, but also efficiently. If you look at shared and electrified, I would say there's there's still a connection, but it's maybe a different connection. So if we look at shared. Of course, the reason for that revolutionary side of autonomy is mostly around mobility as a service and, sh and shared, um, shared mobility and making mobility available to everyone, right? So there's, there's still big demographics in this world that aren't served well from a mobility perspective. Uh, the elderly populations, as mm -hmm. an example, and the disabled populations, uh, which don't have other ways to get around. They can't drive vehicles themselves, and they have very limited access to mobility. So from that perspective, autonomy and shared are very well connected, and they're very important. Um, you know, they're supporting each other in a very big way. If you look at electric, you know, electric is important um, for, for reasons completely outside of autonomy. And of course, many of the automated solutions that we will see deployed in the near future will be electric, but there's no direct technological link between the two. It's interesting, I, uh, being German and following the German news, there's a lot of buzz and talk in the German auto community around electric cars being of lower complexity because of the electric drivetrains and thus requiring fewer automotive assembly hours or fewer jobs. Do you think that all this technology on the evolutionary path that you're bringing in, new sensors, new intelligence, is basically in many ways compensating for the trend of electric cars if you just would just electrify a current Volkswagen Golf, mm -hmm. holding everything as constant, the car would be much simpler to build. In some sense, you're adding all these technologies, the sensor, the software. Is that, is that counterbalancing it a little bit? Well, it's certainly bringing a lot of technology into those vehicles, which, which may otherwise be, let's say, mechatronically simpler. But if you look at it from, a, from the standpoint of the electrical and electronic architectures and the compute architectures, they are very far from being simple. And um, if you look at that from a workforce of tomorrow standpoint, of course, we need to have technicians who understand the, the complexity of, of those systems and solutions and a, you know, a very well-informed and uh, strong workforce from an engineering side as well to be able to continue to uh, evolve those technologies, you know, either evolutionarily or revolutionarily but really be able to contribute to that continued uh, growth in technology. So I, I would say, yes, to some extent, it, it counteracts that, uh, but in very good ways, very positive ways. Jeremy, last quick question. I, I mean, I really like the duality that you kind of uh, articulated between the evolutionary approach and the revolutionary approach, and you guys working on both of these fronts. Um, nevertheless, an outlook like something that you're working on right now that will only hit the market in five or ten years, what are you excited about for us as drivers to look forward to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would say 
Um, something we call seamless mobility is something that I'm really excited uh, to see come in the, in the future. And let, let's just put ourselves into uh, the future of, let's say, 2025. Let me explain what seamless mobility means. It's the mixture between those, pri- that privately owned ve- those privately owned vehicles and the technology that's in those vehicles and that publicly shared mobility as a service solution. So let's put ourselves in uh, 2025 in, say, Detroit. I live 45 miles north of the city of Detroit. And Detroit's a city, it's actually the 13th largest metropolitan area in the U.S. Over 80% of the residents in Detroit live outside the city, and we have essentially zero regional transit system. So I want to get from my home 45 miles north of the city into the city. And what I'm excited about is we're going to be able to make the city of Detroit much more efficient, cleaner, safer, et cetera, by deploying automated shuttles uh, like our Conti Urban Mobility Experience, we've called the Cube, uh, which is a driverless shuttle for the last mile of the journey. But I still have to get myself to the city. And that's where seamless mobility comes in. So I'm going to leave my driveway in, in my privately owned car, which has that cruising chauffeur technology and that valet parking technology I talked about earlier. I'm going to drive to the highway. I've got about a 10-mile commute to the highway. There I've, I get supported by all the driver assistance and active safety systems to keep me safe. I get on the highway, and now for 30 minutes... I'm able to sit back, relax, and let the car do the driving, knowing that it's safe because I've got a complete suite of sensing solutions, monitoring the environment, making sure that there aren't any hazards uh, which are overlooked. There's redundancies in that system to take over control in case something happens and I'm not able to come back into the loop. And I'm able to do something else. I'm able to prepare for the meeting that I'm headed to. I'm able to, to read a book, to check my email, et cetera. And then when I get to the city, my navigation system is going to tell me, please take over control. In the next five miles, we need to exit the highway, and it's going to route me to a parking structure, which is just outside the city. I'm going to drop my vehicle in the designated handover zone. The valet parking is going to park it for me while I transition seamlessly to that cube, that urban mobility experience, which takes me the last mile to my final destination. And that seamless mobility experience will make life a lot easier for all of us. It'll make life a lot safer and more efficient for all of us, allow us to take back some of that time to reduce some of the stresses that we experience every day in our long commutes. And it's something that I think we all should be excited about. Says Jeremy McLean, the Director of Systems and Technology at Continental AG, which is a global leader in automotive innovation. Uh, We need to take a short break right now. When we come back, I will welcome my second guest for today, Paul Newman, who is the co-founder and CTO of Oxbotica, a maker of autonomous driving software. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tevish. This is Business Radio powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. We will be right back. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 